When you buy a new house, before I get into the intro, you should open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're just going to be looking at the first two verses this morning. When you buy a new house, you realize pretty quickly that there are always going to be oddities in it, things that you need to kind of get used to. Uh, just this past spring, we've lived in our house for four years now, and just this past spring, we, we figured out what a random light switch did in our house, and it was great. We, we all of a sudden, a lamp came on that shouldn't have come on, and Lou had flipped a switch that we didn't expect her to flip, and previously, we had no idea what that, that switch did, and so great, now we know. So there are always these sort of learning curve things. This morning, when I came into this particular building, I, I some of you know I get here very, very early on Sunday mornings, and I, I came in, and, and I, I come in through that door, and I heard some like, skittering-type noises, and I thought, oh, man, we've, we've got some mice or worse, maybe some rats in here. Um, but there's good news. I, I don't think that we have those. I, I, I walked across the dead, dark sanctuary over into that door and turned on the lights in here and found out that it was indeed a bat that we, we had in here. So the first 15 to 20 minutes of my day were, were making little bat noises toward, by the way, you can't call a bat. They don't, they don't care. I'm pretty sure this bat was blind because I left both of those doors open and he was not heading for them. So so in the future, if you find me nightly out prowling the streets, handing out vigilante justice, you know why. I'm, I'm Batman. So There is incredible power in small things. We're used to thinking of mighty armies or powerful weapons and great intelligences bringing up and handing down nations. But we also know that one of the reasons why many of the Native Americans here in America folded so quickly was not because of the great power or the great intelligence of people from Western Europe. It was because of the great diseases that Western Europe brought along with them, and smallpox and other diseases that they were fairly resistant to wiped out these indigenous populations. These small viruses were able to take down nations. We talk here at Crossway of reading both widely and deeply in Scripture. We ought to read widely, and that is read a lot of Scripture. You, you should soak it in and take it in. This is why we have those Scripture reading plans that we put out, and we want people to be reading through Scripture in a year. If you haven't been doing that, today is a really good day to pick up one of those sheets out in the foyer and to start doing it. We're going to pick up on the New Testament. If you're thinking, I, I don't want to pick up in the middle of a book, I've got good news for you. We start Matthew on like Tuesday, and you can start reading through the New Testament with us together, reading large sections of Scripture at a time. But while we ought to read large portions of Scripture, there is also power in that which is small and sort of intricate. Today we are going to do that. This introduction to 2 Thessalonians is not terribly unique. It's not terribly different from other passages that Paul writes and other introductions. As a matter of fact, you can almost pick this up verbatim, take it back one book and plop it down, and it reads almost exactly the same as the introduction to 1 Thessalonians. If you go back and you listen to my first sermon in 1 Thessalonians, you will find that I almost say nothing about these verses other than the fact that they are written by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. We hope to change that this morning as we think through what these small and fairly normal and not much, it doesn't seem like there's too much here, but hopefully we can find that God's word is indeed deep and worthy of our deepest reflections and study. Let us read these opening two verses together and let us turn to thinking about what Paul says. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Paul 
Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This particular introduction serves to launch into this letter, which we are unclear as to why we even have. It's pretty clear why we have 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians was written because Paul had left Thessalonica very quickly. He was gone after being there only a handful of weeks and anxiety for the people that he left there, anxiety for that church that it was planted there. He sends Timothy back when he says, I couldn't stand it anymore. We couldn't get back to you. I sent Timothy back to you. And then Timothy seems to have come back and said, hey, there's good news, but there's also these issues. And, and that's the reason why we have First Thessalonians. Why we have Second Thessalonians is a little bit less clear. There are certain scholars who believe that this was actually written first. It seems unlikely to me. We don't really have a good historical situation for why this was written. There's no doubt that it was written by Paul. And what's more, there's no doubt as to the purpose of Paul's writing. There are three major issues that concern this church in Thessalonica that Paul wants to clear up. And interestingly enough, all of these were issues that came up in 1 Thessalonians. And Paul is just going to write more thoroughly about each of these. The first is justice for those who persecute. That God will not allow his church to be persecuted without bringing justice for them. This is the main concern of chapter 1. Chapter 2 concerns when that justice will happen and the day of the Lord and the coming of that day. The third chapter focuses on admonishing the idol. Each of these were factors in the first letter, and they will be much more focused on here in the second letter. But for us today, before we get to any of those, let us just look at these three, or two, excuse me, we're not even doing three, these two small verses, and what it means for three people, or three entities in particular, two people and one entity. Not Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, but first let us consider the church. The church is nothing more and nothing less here than the gathering of God's people. The word used here is ekklesia. I usually don't care to talk about Greek words, but it's a Greek word that you probably know very well. It's the same word that comes up in ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. We have long since translated it in English as church. It's always been translated as church, and thus we have then defined what church is off of what we find in the New Testament. So we would say that the church is not a building. We are in a building, and oftentimes colloquially we'll call this thing the church, uh, That's not technically true. You people are the church. The members of Crossway Christian Church are the church. We just happen to be in a building. Some people get really kind of nodded when they hear people talk about the building as a church. It doesn't bother me all that much. If you want to say, hey, are you going over to the old church? I I know what you're talking about. You don't actually think that that is a church. I'm okay with that. And you should be as well. First admonition. Be okay with church as a building. Colloquially, it's fine. But it is primarily the gathering of the people. And the way that we use this word church typically means it's the gathering of people for religious purposes. So even when we use something like, that is his church. So Frank loves nature and the mountains are his church. Well, even in saying church that way, what we really mean by that is a place where he might go and worship, where he might go and praise nature or whatever it might be. We always use the word church in in a sense of religious gatherings. But this is not the way that the word was actually used in Paul's day. Ecclesia meant the gathering of 
of any of a number of people for any of a number of things. It just meant assembly more than anything else. And it's all over the place in Greek literature, and it's all over the place in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it's used 77 times in the Greek Old Testament. In places like 1 Kings 8.14, where it doesn't mean much of anything except that people are gathered together. In 1 Kings 8.14, the king turned around and blessed the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. That's it. It's just a gathering of people. Now, we might want to refer to that particular assembly as a church. After all, it is the people of Israel. But our intentions are simply to say that that's not exactly what the word means. It just means a gathering of people together. But this is important for us because at the very least, at the very least, when Paul uses this word, he's not implying sort of a religious entity so much so as he's implying a gathering of people together. And so it doesn't make any sense for us to think of ourselves as a church lest we be gathered together. Language is indeed fluid, and we can begin to think of gather in different and meaningful ways, but today we're stretching what church could possibly mean when we start thinking about church and gathering together being over the internet or, or being at separate campuses and separate buildings altogether. That is not the church. This is one of the reasons why we pressed so hard to get into this building, because even though we were under one roof, being separated into two different areas did not allow us to truly act like the church like we can here. We are gathered together here. When we do this over the internet or on other things, it is difficult to think that we are gathering in any real sense. We might be meeting together, we, we might be communicating, we might be interacting, we might be networking, we might be relating to one another, but we're not gathered together. The church gathers together. And therefore, I think that we are right to resist any sort of movement away and pushing for anything but actual physical presence together when we pray and sing and listen to sermons and read the word of God. It's not that people who have multiple campuses or people who, who do Zoom meetings during this time are necessarily bad or wrong, but it, it is at least a distance away from what Paul had envisioned when he talked about the church and the gathering of the church. We come in here to worship him. We come at here to work for him and to do things outside, but the church is best seen as the church when it gathers together. But it's not just gathering together, it's gathering together for a reason, the, this particular word didn't just mean any group of people that might find themselves together. So you could take a snapshot of Times Square right now, and you would find people milling about, people going into shops, coming out of shops, taking pictures, whatever they're doing, walking toward a cab, getting in a cab. And no Greek-speaking person would call that an ecclesia. They wouldn't say this is an assembly of people. The assembly is always there for a reason and for a purpose. Now, if you went back and you took a picture of the same place on December 31st, around 11 o'clock at night, that might be a gathering of people because they're there for a reason. They're there to be outside and be cold and be around strangers and not be able to use the bathroom when they've got good couches at home that they can watch that same ball drop. I don't know why they do it. And while they've gathered there for a purpose, we are not just gathered together without reason, but we are gathered here for a purpose. It's not haphazard and it's not an accident. We are indeed here in God. That at least means that we are here for God. That word is incredibly flexible. I think it means a whole bunch of stuff in this particular verse. Paul is using it, I think, to mean a whole bunch of stuff. But at 
the very least, it means that we're here for God. We have been gathered because of what God has done and for him. And so especially on Sunday mornings, we are gathered to worship him, to give him honor and glory, to hear from our God, and to adjust our lives to what he says. Other churches, I think, frankly, meet for other reasons. There's a church in our area who is opening up a different building this morning, and they were presenting this to the world by saying, hey, we're going to have a Kona Ice Day. We're going to have a Kona Ice Day. So Kona Ice, basically, knock off slushy. okay? So they're going to hand these out, I think, as a way to get people in. That is not the business of the church. By the way, I know you're wondering, my wife woke up this morning saying she's sick and uh, saying my throat hurts and maybe I can get something cold to drink. So hopefully she's, no, she's actually sick. Don't worry about it. That seems wrong. Maybe I shouldn't want her to be sick. I don't know. But we're going to have to edit that out, Al, so she can't hear it. Things like that are incredibly foolish for a number of reasons. But the, the best reason why is that luring people in with other things besides the worship of God fools the people who want to come for the worship of God. You are no longer there to worship God together. You are there because you want to bring other people in, or you are there because you wanted to get a free slushy, or you're there for any of a number of things, but that is not why we gather. We gather so that we can worship and praise our God. And we are a people who belong together. This isn't a together that is forced and unnatural like holding two magnets from your fridge together with their poles facing one another so that they, they resist one another, waiting for that tension to be released so that they can fly apart. That's, that shouldn't mark our fellowship together. It shouldn't be unnatural. It shouldn't be forced. We should be glad to be here because God himself has brought us in. We are here for God. It is our great connection through the gospel that brings us all together here this morning. God has called us here. We are not here on accident. Even if you stumbled in here, not knowing why you came here, and you came even without expecting anything, you are not here by accident. God is sovereign over all things, and he has brought you to this place. And so let us then consider the second bit of our introduction this morning, and that is God our Father. God has brought us here indeed. He is the one who gathers us. If we are assembled or gathered, we rightly understand it is God's doing. And once we understand it is God's doing, we immediately place ourselves in this sort of line of rich history of God promising to gather his people back together, not gather them across the continents, not gather them in disparate places, but to gather them together. In many places, too many for us to mention. I'm only going to read from two, but it is all over the history and all over the prophets in the Old Testament, beginning even in Deuteronomy chapter 30. In verse 4, Moses writes, If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, this is after he has promised, if you don't do what I say in keeping the law, I will scatter you throughout the nations. I will exile you and move you out of the promised land. The promise then comes back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. That promise is re-upped in the book of Isaiah. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time and recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, and from Pathros, from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from all of the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Time and time again, the prophets talk about God bringing in his people. You are those people. You have been brought in and brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ because God has gathered us together. Now, we shouldn't be confused that in all of this gathering language that he is using some form of ecclesia, that's not true, but it's clear that before you can assemble, you must have a reason to gather together. That reason is given to us because God has indeed called us together. People of different backgrounds, people of different nationalities, people of different likes, all gathered together different histories, different problems with sin, different understandings of themselves and even understandings of the world around them, all of these people, all of you, with all of these differences brought together, transformed by God's work and renewed and called by his name. Isn't it sound a lot like the reverse of the Tower of Babel where people with evil intentions build a tower up to see God and God in his wrath disperses them and his judgment disperses them and gives them different languages and now he gathers them together and builds them up to worship him. Friends, we have been gathered here by God and this fact is given us by nothing more than just one particular word that Paul uses which ought to strike us and that is God, our Father. Paul the consummate Jew looks at a church which is filled with Gentiles and he is willing to call God their father, my father, our father. We think that we have a lot of divisions in our society today. It was nothing compared to the way Jews and Gentiles felt about one another. The Jews no doubt thought Gentiles as religiously dirty and frankly rightfully so. They thought that the worship of idols was a grotesque distortion of the worship of the one true and living God. And that it would, if they shared in fellowship with them, make them dirty before God as well. The Gentiles saw the Jews as small and provincial. Their God was a God of a small little people. And so he must therefore be a small little God. A people who were frankly unworthy of time, and outside of simply constraining the chaos of Jerusalem, not worthy of much consideration at all. And yet here, Gentiles come to know the one true and living God, the God of the Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jews invite them in and welcome them in. We ought to always remember that we call one another brother and sister because of this great act of God bringing us together. In humility, friends, remember that you too were far off, without God and without hope in the world, and that you were brought here through the will of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember that you have the same Father as those who also rightly confess. And remember that all of this is due to his grace and is not merited to you in any way. So we're Think through what a great and high privilege it is to call God your Father, to pray, not with a distant sort of sovereign, high, and holy God. I, I be 
quest of you certain aspects of my life, but you get to go to him and say, Father, help me. Father, guide me. Father, direct me. The one who has created the universe, the maker of space, literally before God, or not before God existed, before God made space, there was no space. There wasn't a point. There wasn't a line. There weren't two lines that we could put together. There weren't three lines for what we know, however many dimensions there might be. There were none of them before God said, let it be so. He makes galaxies and quasars. He is the architect of all of nature. The one who has formed the world and upholds it by the word of his power calls you his own. You are less than a speck of dust on the outside of a record, and he loves you. Realize the great privilege that it is to call him Father. And once more, because he is our Father, he will do well by us. He will not neglect us. He always does what is right and good. So the Father gives you grace and peace. As Paul says here, The peace is not simply supposed to be an absence of strife in your life, but it is sort of a complete and total contentment and satisfaction. That as Paul, you might learn what it is to abound and to be brought low. That in any and every circumstance, as Paul said back in 1 Thessalonians, you might give thanks to God. And certainly, the grace that he gives to us, this unmerited favor that has been won for you through the work of Jesus Christ. The only thing we actually did deserve was wrath and anger from the Father and from the Son and from the Spirit. But what we got instead was unmerited favor where Jesus Christ has died for the wrath that was due to us, showing us the love of God, ending the power and the penalty and one day even the presence of sin in our lives. And all this is applied to us because God gives us faith that we might believe and trust and have our lives marked by continual faithfulness to Jesus and continual repentance when we do wrong, to worship him, to praise him, to honor him, and to glorify him through holding up a good confession. That offer of grace is extended to anyone who hears words like this. This is nothing less than the gospel. Hear the call of the gospel to believe and to trust in the work that Jesus Christ has done. And no matter what your background is, no matter what your family history is, no matter what you have done, no matter all of the evil things that you have done will be separated from you as far as the east is from the west because of what Jesus Christ has done. This is indeed the grace we have been given, but we are only given it through the Lord Jesus Christ to whom we finally turn our attention. I want to speak to you primarily about that word, Lord. It does double duty here. It talks about Jesus both as a man and it talks about him as God. First, I want to talk to you about how this word Lord really refers to Jesus as God. We have worked ourselves into a bit of a problem here in Western civilization. And that is, when we talk about the one true creator of all things, the Almighty, We typically want to refer to him as God. That is the word that we use. Every other word seems to be a lesser form. We want to talk about God. And so when we talk about Jesus being and having the nature of God and man in him, being the second person of the Trinity incarnated, we end up talking about the fact that Jesus is God. But in doing so, we come into quite a bit of a problem because you can scan through the New Testament quite a bit and you find very few references to Jesus actually, you know, being capital G, God. Now, we, we have 
some, and that's really honestly enough. There's John 1, 1, which implies it very strongly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, there's no doubt that that Word is Jesus Christ, and so the Word being God should be enough there, but nevertheless, at the end of the book of John, we have Thomas, who finally sees the resurrected Lord and says to him, my Lord and my God. And even Paul gets in on this act in Titus. Chapter 2, verse 13, where he talks about the church waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And perhaps there's another smattering of places where it's implied stronger than here. But the fact is that the church has been so emphatic over the years to say Jesus is God You can understand, perhaps, why some people outside of the church would look at the New Testament and say, you guys are so emphatic about saying Jesus is God. Why doesn't Paul say, our God, Jesus Christ? Why doesn't he use language like that? This is really standard language. It is standard for him to say, the Father is God, and the Lord is Jesus Christ. The honest answer is simply this. God is not the only way to refer to God. It's just the way that we typically refer to God, but it is certainly not the only way to speak of him. There are other titles that he has given, and frankly, there are other beings that are called gods that aren't gods, so it's not even like that is a simple slam dunk. Baal and Molech were gods. The idols of the Greeks were gods. In the Old Testament, quite frequently, we have God revealing himself primarily through his particular name, Now, when the Hebrew was originally written, it was written mostly in consonants. Some of those consonants do double duty as vowels, but it's primarily just consonants. And if we were to take the name of God as it appeared in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, and we were to transliterate it into English, it would be something like uh, Y-H-W-H, which we tend to pronounce Yahweh, but honestly, we have no idea how it was actually pronounced. Now, the Jews were very, very particular about misquoting and misusing the name of God. And so when they came upon that four-letter word, that four-letter name, when they started at some point in time reading it, they stopped saying the name Yahweh or however they would pronounce it, and they started saying the word Adonai because they didn't want to mispronounce it. And Adonai is a completely different word. It means Lord. They were very careful about this. So careful, in fact, that when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, which they needed to do because all their people were scattered around, and all of a sudden Hebrew became used less and less, and Greek more and more, they would actually go through and translate the Old Testament scriptures, and in the middle of all of that Greek writing, you would find four little Hebrew letters every single time they came upon the name of the Lord. Now, Christian scholars, for some odd reason, didn't have that much of a trouble doing it. And when they came upon it, they simply translated it as the word Lord, as Kyrios, the same word that is applied to Jesus. Christians were willing to do this because they had automatically assumed that Jesus was the Lord. And by calling him the Lord, they are no less calling him by the very name of the personal God that they hold as a creator and maker of the entire universe. Continually, when Paul does this, it smells and sounds a lot like the way in which the Lord is spoken of in the Old Testament. As homework, you can read Philippians chapter 2 and then go and read through 
Isaiah 45, and it's very clear that the New Testament church was picking up language of the one true and living God and applying it to Jesus. Even in our handout this morning, you can see that we have this use of the word Lord. English versions still use it. In our bulletin this morning, the second line down that Josh read, where it says, O Lord, that's verse 24 in that psalm, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That is the name of God, and that is there applied in the Greek directly to Jesus. There's a good reason then to think that these early Christians thought that Jesus was no less than God. It is a wonderful way for Paul to use these terms for two reasons. First, it differentiates continuously between the Father and Jesus. If you called Jesus God, what we would end up with is confusion about modalism, whether God the Father became Jesus Christ the Son, went back up to being God the Father, and then came back down as the Spirit. We can look at the way Paul uses these two terms, calling God or calling the Father God and Jesus Christ the Lord, and realize that he must mean these are two distinct people. They are two distinct and uh, relationships to one another. They communicate to us in two different ways. And therefore, modalism is directly out. But they're also not, therefore, unequal. Because if the Lord applies directly back to the very person of God who spoke in the Old Testament, we understand that that is a very blurred vision in the Old Testament of the one true and living God who speaks both as God and Lord. So it allows them to be distinct, but also not implying that they're unequal. But second, it speaks of the very nature and the purpose of Jesus' incarnation. It's telling that the term that Paul applies is the name of the Lord. It is Yahweh. As God personally reveals himself to the Israelites, he didn't spread that name abroad. It was to his people that the word and the name of the Lord came. It makes sense then, as God reveals himself intimately and personally to the Jews, not only then, but then finally in Jesus Christ, that it is the second person of the Trinity who would take upon himself the name of the Lord. And even grace and peace come from Jesus Christ, so he is indeed God on high. But secondly, he is also a man. The word for church was in a great many cases an assembly for political purposes. It was almost universally the way that it was used. It was an assembly of people that gathered for political reasons. The church was no different. The church was no different because they continually upheld that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whereas for the rest of the world, there was one Lord, and that Lord was Caesar. He reigned over the Roman world, over all that is known, with complete and perfect control. He was to be honored, revered, and at times even worshipped. And yet here, these small bands of people would stand up, even in the face of martyrdom, and say, no, Jesus is Lord. It's more than a political statement, but it is at least a political statement. Politics is fine. It's good, even. God has given us administrations. He has given us the governing authorities as a gift to mankind. We need people who will work for righteousness and good policies within politics. But for the vast majority of us, we need to rethink how we handle politics in our lives. We do truly gather for political purposes, but those purposes 
are different from the way that the vast majority of us tackle those purposes in our lives. We are prone to thinking that politics is about changing this law or making this law or getting this judge here or getting this representative here. But this is not, I think, how we are to pursue politics in the church, and it's certainly not how the early church pursued politics. We are honestly to seek and make good policy changes and to promote those good policy changes, to pursue righteousness, justice, and faithfulness. But within the church, and in your individual lives, you're okay to do that. I will give you warnings on it here in just a minute. But within the church, we ought to do that in two unique ways. First, we focus on the laws and the issues that Scripture tell us are important. I'm sure that term limits are nice, and I'm sure that your opinion on universal health care is well-informed. But that is not the business of the church. Murdering people, that's the business of the church. Forming laws about fair and equitable use of law enforcement or fair and equitable laws that apply to everybody, having, as the Old Testament would term it, equal scales, that is important to Scripture. Not only do we focus on the laws and the issues that Scripture tell us are important, but we also need to understand, and you need to get this very, very clear, that any action that we take in this world will always be tethered to sin because this world is with devils filled. And everybody that we deal with is going to be sinful. And everybody outside of this church that you're going to deal with is, especially those who deny Jesus Christ, are going to be filled with sin. They will never be perfect. And so we must await our one true Lord, Jesus Christ. Every single year that I've been able to vote, I have heard people, and I know that you've heard this before, I'm telling you this again, every single election, this election is so important. My first election in 2000, I heard it. I heard it in 2004, I heard it in 2008, I heard it in 2012, I heard it in 2016, and now again, this is the most important election ever. It's not that important. It's not. Listen, if Biden is elected, the water is not going to turn bitter. And if Trump is elected, the stars will not fall from the sky. It's not going to happen. The world will continue in sin and in darkness. The world will continue to be an unjust place. It doesn't mean that that election doesn't matter. It just means that there is a man who is more important to focus on than Biden and Trump. Because while they won't bring an end to the world, he will. No. They won't cause the water to turn bitter or the stars to fall. But Jesus Christ will roll back this world like a scroll. Friends, we ought to focus more on Jesus, put our attention and our cares and our concerns more on Jesus and less on these petty, insignificant, weak, sin-filled, careless, callous, narrow-minded, shallow political parties that surround us. When the New Testament church would stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. It was just about the most politically dangerous thing that they could do. And I'm telling you today, it's nearly meaningless.
How would people talk about you? How would people classify you from your social media and Facebook posts? I'm not going to answer that question for you. It's literally for you. Would they classify you as fighting for a party, a platform, which will, by nature, have worldly objectives attached to them? Can people separate out your politics from your religion and your belief? And if not, might you consider that you have priorities mixed up? Friends, are your politics formed more by your reading of Scripture and by Jesus or by cable news and Facebook posts? Is your understanding of Jesus' politics framed more by church and faithful believers or by all the things you read and see on social media? In John chapter 19, we have Jesus before the high priests. Pilate has interviewed him. Pilate wants nothing to do with him. For various and sundry reasons, Pilate would rather just usher him out of his presence. Not because Pilate's a good guy, please understand that, but because Pilate is indifferent to all of the petty problems that lower people have. He just doesn't care. John relates this to us. Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, if you release him, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. And now Pilate is going to throw those words in their face. So Pilate brings him out, sits Jesus down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. It was a day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate then says to him, again, throwing it back in their face, Shall I crucify your king? To which not the Jews, not the general rabble, but to which the chief priests respond, We. We have no king but Caesar. Listen. They crucified their Messiah Messiah, for cheap political gain and evil desires. Friends, you can use your lips in here to speak and to say all the good things you want. And you can confess Jesus is Lord here. You can sing with us these truths and go home and have every single keystroke imply nothing more than we have no king but Caesar. If you are more passionate about policies than about Jesus, you have a problem. If you speak more of a political party than about Jesus, you have a problem. If you find that those who oppose you and your party are people to be conquered rather than people to be loved, you have a problem. If your main goals in this life are to see legislation passed, to see judges put in place, and to see certain people elected rather than to see people come to the kingdom of God, you 
have a major problem and you need to repent. Friends, our God and our Lord are greater than the things that we uphold as so terribly important. There is no political party, no legislation, no judicial action that can bring what Jesus Christ can, will, and shall bring. He will bring grace and peace. Trust in him and trust in his kingdom and leave everything else behind. Let us pray. Father, give us the vision of Christ necessary to see him in his glory. The glory, Father, that he had with you before the foundation of the world. For it is that vision and that vision alone that can possibly sustain us through the trials and indeed the very severe temptations of this world. Let us see our Lord as the risen Savior, as the root of Jesse, as the prophesied King, as the incarnation of God on high into our lowly estate for our salvation. Let us see him through the Spirit as our only hope for salvation and as indeed our greatest good. Do this for your glory and for our good. Amen.